0: Hi, and welcome to the LEAP Podcast. LEAP stands for Leadership Education for Asian Pacifics. I'm Linda Akutagawa, your co-host. And I'm Yana,
1: your co-host for the LEAP Podcast. Welcome to Season 3. Our theme this season is centered on identity within a leadership context and how we, as Asian-Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders, navigate the complexities of our worlds as leaders through the lens of identity.
0: Our hope for all of you who are listening to us is that these conversations spark new ideas and you're able to apply them in your own life. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our next episode of The Leap Podcast. I'm so Pleased to welcome our guest today, Curtis Takata Rooks. I should say, specifically, Dr. Curtis Takata Rooks. He's a critical race and ethnic studies scholar in Asian and Asian American studies at Loyola Marymount University, or LMU and he brings a broad wealth of experience from his career in higher education. Currently, Dr. Takata Rooks serves as the LMU Asian Pacific American Studies Program Coordinator, teaching courses in multiracial identity, contemporary issues in APIA communities, and systems thinking. Dr. Takata Rooks holds a doctorate in comparative culture with an emphasis in cultural anthropology from the University of California, Irvine. He was born at Camp Zama in Japan to an African-American father and a native Japanese mother. He now lives in Culver City, California with his wife, Miki Fujimoto. And they, along with their daughter, Mariko, are active in the Los Angeles area Japanese-American community. And actually, Dr. Takato Rooks, or Curtis, as we'll be calling him, is actually joining us from Japan today. So Curtis, we're really happy to have you. I am going to ask you to just chime in briefly we're we're so excited to have you, Curtis.
1: Thank you so much. It's six thirty a.m. your time, right?
2: I would say good morning to you, but I know it's your
1: afternoon. <laughs> good afternoon. Yes, well, thank you for waking up so early to be on our podcast. We're so happy you're here. We have lots of things to ask you because of your expertise and your background. So, with that said, how about we start with the first kind of general question, which is: Please share with us about your personal and professional background.
2: I was born in Japan, as Linda mentioned moved to the United States as a toddler, and we settled in Manhattan, Kansas, which is uh, near Fort Riley, Kansas. My father was in the military U.S. Army, would stay in the Army until he retired in the 1970s. And so growing up in, in Manhattan, we were really embraced by the Black community. My mom, she was remarkable in a lot of ways in that she found her way into that women's community there. And there were several of the matriarchs of the community that sort of adopted her and so even as early 60s, she was, there's a photo I have of her where she's the godmother of someone wow. in this black church, right? So she stayed and was the treasurer secretary for almost 20 years after the last mm-hmm. time we came back to, to the state. So Manhattan, Kansas became sort of our home in the United States, even though my, my father's from uh, North Carolina. And so we always cycled in and out of uh, Fort Riley. Mm-hmm. So growing up in a really sort of protected environment in some ways, but Manhattan was also small. So the schools were integrated and some other things. And so that sort of shapes a little bit of sort of how one understands themselves. When I was in third grade, my father was sent to Vietnam. My mom was in the hospital with an illness. And so we went to live with my paternal grandparents in Wilmington, North Carolina. This is the Deep South in
1: 1965.
2: So understanding sort of that provided a really good understanding of who my father was, where he grew up. Of course, as an eight-year-old, I wasn't doing that kind of analysis. I, <laughs> my brother and I were just figuring things out and sort of
1: mm-hmm.
2: living through that. But we got to a really good chance to spend a lot of time with our, our grandparents. And then our Aunt Hattie, who was my grandfather's older sister. But she was the one who had all the knowledge about herbs and things out in the woods that can heal you. Mm-hmm. They they, lived, they were sharecroppers. Um, mm-hmm. She and her husband. And so we'd go out to hang out at their place. They didn't have indoor plumbing. Wow. And so, you know, it was it was truly the rural South. Although we did have the pump inside the house. So you didn't have to go <laughs> outside to pump the water. So we thought we were like, we're living on Easy Street, right? And, you know, we chopped wood for the wood stoves and other things like that. So it was a real sort of hands-on experience that way and so you know we hit i have a couple photos that from that bring back really good memories for my brother and i from there we came back to kansas for a short time and then went to san antonio texas for a year joined our father there after that tour in vietnam and then he was sent back to vietnam again so we're going to finish out the school year then head back to kansas as as far as we were concerned some things happening ended up on okinawa And so Mm -hmm. instead of heading back to Kansas, we headed to Okinawa, and that was during my elementary school and and junior high years, which were pretty formative at that point, right? This is a shirt from Okinawa, and Okinawa, I was there. On Okinawa, I was around 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there. And so those are really important times of sort of figuring out who you are, you know, sort Mm of 11, 12, 13. And it's also, this is in between 1968 and 1971, So all the things that are jumping off in the States, black power movement, uh, yellow power movement, et cetera. So everyone now is engaging in self-naming, understanding their identity, no longer accepting the identities that were given to them, no longer accepting the definitions. And so we're, you know, the group of uh, friends that I had were a little bit aware of what's going on, paying attention a a little Mm -hmm. bit to those things, even, you know, in in junior high and sort of... playing like we actually knew something, right? And so we're, we're sitting around talking about those things and, and about sort of the naming, right? You know, and that's when mm-hmm. Afro-American came out, other things, right? I had a couple conversations with my dad because he's from the generation that used the term Negro. And so black mm-hmm. was seen as derogatory. And so there's that intergenerational tension that's being, you know, th- those conversations. Okinawa was was important in a couple of different ways. And one of them in particular was about sort of being mixed. I remember at one point I I used a derogatory term for Asians that was used, particularly in Vietnam. I and mean, we were there, Okinawa is a staging area for Vietnam. And as I said it, my dad grabs me behind the neck and literally picks me off the ground. <laughs> and Walks me into the bathroom, looking at the mirror. And he says, if you want to see one of those, here's one. Take a look at your face. Oh, wow. And he says, oh. if the Okina because I, we were referring to the Okinawans, he says, if they're one, then your mom's one. If they're your mom's one, then you're one, and so really making me understand. And mm-hmm. I think in a couple of things, and in, in that moment was about being mixed, but it was also about being a black male and respecting your mother. Yeah, uh, that's one thing mm-hmm. he wasn't going to let me not do. Man, that was uh, very important in our household. Later, you know, as we're talking around doing the sort of identity or talking about what's happening in the United States, and I was sitting there, I said, "I wonder what my name would be." Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had a friend from who was from Hawaii and we're sitting there. He goes, well, I know what you would be. I said, well, what? He goes, you're Hapa Afro.
1: Mm-hmm. And so
2: when he gave me that sort of name and there was a lot of us who were mixed living there, right? He wasn't himself, but with the military and many of our friends were mixed, they're all mixed in within the group. So it wasn't mm-hmm. like that was un you know, I was the only one, you know, for many yeah. people growing up in situations, they find they're the only one, there's no one else. But we had communities around us, right? So, yeah. you know, in Discover Nikkei, I wrote up, talked about sort of on um, being mixed, and mm-hmm. that different normal was our normal, right? Because mm-hmm. we had lots of families around us where the mother doesn't look like the father, mm-hmm. and the father doesn't look like the mother. They don't speak the same language, and not necessarily Asian either, too, right? So, you know, yeah. we had German mothers and Italian mothers and French mothers, and you know, growing mm-hmm. up in that military environment, foreign was not, <laughs> right?
1: Yeah. Yeah,
2: Foreign was our normal, right? And we were constantly moving. So those sorts of things. Our different normal, as I, mm. I talk about, was, as I said, not foreign to us. And so when he gave me the name, said Hapa, Hapa Afro, you know, and when you're 13, having a label mm-hmm. as bad as, as much as, I mean, a positive label is really important. And so I won't say that I'd, I've never had struggles with sort of mixed identity since then. Because it's always a matter of what they say, and Jesuits will say it's all a mat- Always a matter of becoming. You're always, you know, mm. examining, right? Mm. But it gave me a, a solid foundation mm-hmm. to move from, right, and someplace that I could always fall back to. And so, and I think for for my generation, those of us born in the in the fifties, right, the mid mm-hmm. to late fifties, we find that when the Asian American community, in particular, began to face sort of a lot of children who were mixed coming mm-hmm. out of the sort of out marriage rate, particularly mm-hmm. the Japanese-American community from the from the 70s, right? 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. Well, when their children were starting to become sort of cognitive and, and aware mm-hmm. and, you know, getting into their preteens and then adolescence, mm-hmm. we were young adults. And so mm-hmm. the work of people like Christine E.G. Mahal, who published one of the first dissertations on mixedness, mm-hmm. she's Black- Japanese as well. She was at UCLA, a clinical psychologist. Mm-hmm. George Kitch, Stephen Murphy Shigematsu, and then Michael Thornton, who's a sociologist. Michael's mm-hmm. uh, work looked at uh, family because sociologists aren't are, you know sort of the, they look at sort of groups and and, and society. He looked mm-hmm. at families, and when we all looked around at the literature, all the literature in academia said things that were basically tragic mulatto type. There was that Mm. talked about deficiency, but our lives, Mm. we knew weren't deficient. Mm. And so we began to sort of take a look at maybe the fundamental questions the way in which we're asking things, right, are maybe incorrect. And so Mm -hmm. one of the things that Michael Thornton found in looking at his work was that when you look at sort of black families or black culture, black values, black cultural values, Japanese cultural Mm -hmm. values, as well as military culturals values, right? All three are sort of vertical uh, societies where seniority, wisdom, all those things are valued, right?
0: Yeah. And
2: so he started to look at, look at sort of where did these things intersect and how did that sort of contribute to having vibrant, robust families, right? That's, yeah. that's not to do the Pollyanna thing, say there was great mm-hmm. families, thing. All families have struggles, but sort of what was it that held them together? Mm-hmm. And then, so when we start to look at things like seniority, those sorts of things, mm-hmm. and those core values, collective identity, yeah. wasn't about individualism and in any of those mm-hmm. in any of those spheres. Mm-hmm. And then where they were different, and I've talked about this before, their compliments, like my dad really taught me to respect my mom. And that comes mm-hmm. straight from Black culture in many, many ways. Mm-hmm. Well, mom from Japanese cu- culture is teaching me to respect and honor my dad. Right. Yeah. And so they complement really well. So in, in that sense, there wasn't a struggle that was being created at home. Mm-hmm. If there was a struggle, it was sort of how you were dealing with the external world. And the external world wasn't always yeah. sure how to deal with me. It allowed me to sort of look at things and see things, I think, interesting ways. And and looking back, it's not it's not a surprise I, I became a cultural anthropologist. Yeah. <laughs> life was ethnography Yeah, to figure out how to sort of move through different communities, move through, Mm -hmm. because your best friend's home probably had different cultural rules than yours. Mm -hmm. And so being able to be in their household and be respectful Mm -hmm. for them and then introducing your household to them,
0: can I just ask one question? I I thought it was really interesting and I'm curious whether or not this is in your experience, especially given the friends that you grew up with, you know, because you said it was a different normal, but being in a military kind of environment, you had friends that were also mixed as well too. You said that if there was any conflict, it was with more the external world, not the internal. Did you find that amongst your friends that was pretty similar as well too? And could you just kind of maybe speak more about what you meant by this external world conflict, I guess?
2: When I, when I say the external conflict, it's, you know, when you would go someplace and someone would look at you and go, so what are you? <laughs> right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For those of us in our sort of in that other circle, that wasn't a question that raised any, I mean, and if it was raised, it wasn't to try to figure out why you don't fit. It's to figure out mm-hmm. how you fit with us. Right. Mm -hmm. and it wasn't to sort of pigeonhole you into X, Y, or Z, Mm -hmm. you know, in that sense. When I say externally, you know, people, before they even almost know your name, are are asking that question, Mm
1: -hmm.
2: right? And so what I've come to understand is that tells me more about them than it tells me about myself, right? Mm
1: -hmm.
2: That for some reason they need to be able to classify me, then sort of I'm causing you discomfort by my just being here. Right. And so you want me to do the labor for you. And so that's what I mean by that discomfort. you know and, and other times if we're talking about sort of group settings when you go into it and, I, and I, I'll say this and I don't want to say too long on it because I think the sort of deficiency conflict stuff is what everybody hears and, and, mm-hmm. and I think there's there's more to this story. But you know, when you first arrive at a group and are you Japanese enough, or are you Asian enough? Or are you black enough? And sort of, there's usually a series of litmus tests that happen. And in my life experience, I've been able to grow up in in various neighborhoods, Mm -hmm. in various cultural areas. And so Mm -hmm. having the bona fides for any one of those is pretty easy for me to start to answer their questions or -hmm. or demonstrate whatever they consider is legitimate. But for me, that sort of gatekeeping, while it it, it is certainly annoying (laughs) and tiring, (laughs) is only a part of the story, right? The other part of the story is, is I think growing up mix has given me has provided me a platform to understand difference and and understand difference is not being bad to Mm -hmm. understand conflict as a way as as a movement toward resolving things Mm
1: -hmm. being
2: because we know that it's possible for those things to work out it's not it's not theoretical for us it's lived we know that there can be a, a third creation that comes out of it you know whether it's fusion food or song in one language using the sort of rhythms and beats of another yeah. other cultural background so you know all mm-hmm. those things right you know it's possible and you and you sort of and it's not a guarantee because i won't ever say that because some depending on it really depends on sort of family and and personal situations, how you deal with it. But as I said, it provides this platform for the possibility, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you look at the work of Rika Houston and Mikkel Hogan and their work on mixed race identity, their article called Edge Dancer and then colon with a whole bunch Mm -hmm. of other stuff, but they, they really, you know, sort of look at saying, you know, for folks of mixed and they did a qualitative study using grounded theory. And so they found that there were sort of three major themes that arose out of those interviews that mixed folks, almost all of us have experienced sort of stories or, or periods of alienation. So we all have to mm-hmm. have a story, that theme in our life. There's also mm-hmm. the theme of complexity, as well as the theme of celebration. And so as we look at that, and as we sort of reflect on our lives, all of us and in, in reflect on who we are sort of we tell ourselves stories, we we remember memories, right? And so remembering memories, if you're active and sort of then trying to understand what those memories mean, sort of, they would call creative reframing and creative agency to really sort of break down. So that, that question of what are you, that person who made you feel really badly about yourself when you were 11 or 12 or 13 or 33 and recycling back through that episode in your life with other life experience, you come to recognize, wow, that person put their stuff on me. That wasn't about me. That mm-hmm. was whatever it was, you know, whatever mm-hmm. it was that they had. And you're able to then sort of place an understanding of those things outside of yourself, right? And that mm-hmm. allows you then to, to see, see your worth and, and then to engage in the communities that you're engaging in, offering mm-hmm. yourself and all that you have to them. I think one of the things that they found, too, is that, you know, sort of fr- from a leadership perspective, if we draw on those lessons that we have, right, A, the ability mm-hmm. to recognize what's at the core of importance in the way other people communicate, whether culturally mm-hmm. or, or linguistically, mm-hmm. very quick. Many, at least from uh, those who are sort of both mixed race and international families, mm-hmm. you know, having are, uh, being bilingual, or mm-hmm. even if you're not fluently bilingual, but to recognize that there's different ways in which people express themselves, just different languages, and that there's different mm-hmm. realities. For me, earthquakes are not experienced for me in English. Mm-hmm. Earthquake to me is jishin. When the earth moves or the house starts to shake, I don't think earthquake, I think jishin. So, you know, y- knowing that, y- that people experience things through language, through culture in different ways, mm-hmm. then that difference isn't bad differences difference, is difference. Mm-hmm. It, it just mm-hmm. is uh, sometimes it conflicts and sometimes it doesn't but you know that from a lived life so if you draw on those skills right your ability to recognize those things to tease those out to to be able to to switch what they what psychologists would call code switching right to be able to move in and out both linguistically or culturally mm-hmm. you know, i've always said yeah you know, while i'm here in japan to walk around japan and um an American, big American, big African-American male, I probably won't get very many of my needs met. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so having grown up with Japanese culture, I understand how to communicate with my body, how to sort of move in and out Mm -hmm. of places here. But it's not a matter of not being authentically me or Mm -hmm. or trying to to front or any of those sorts of things. It's Mm -hmm. it's when one needs to to speak culturally in a a certain language, in a certain Mm -hmm. culture. And again, that's nonverbal as well. You get your needs met if you mm-hmm. don't it's harder to get your needs met mm-hmm. so recognizing those things with having the fluidity to be able to move yeah. in and out of those internal contradictions is just that fluency can be very helpful in leadership positions it allows you yeah. to take in and hear information from various sides finding a pathway through recognizing when someone's hurt and pain and whatever else is going isn't allowing them to hear their colleague
0: mm-hmm.
2: all those sorts of things which Fortunately or unfortunately, fortunately, because you understand it when you see it, unfortunately, because anytime you experience uh, self-conflict, but allows you the sort of experiential knowledge that you can draw on Mm -hmm. as as part of your leadership, the ability to be flexible, nimble, to recognize and to recognize where things overlap, where those intersections Mm -hmm. are, where we can communicate with one another in ways Mm -hmm. that can be effective for the task at hand, right? And recognizing the task at hand differs. There's not one solution for all situations and all tasks at hand. And so that fluidity and that nimbleness, I think, as we become aware, and, and, and I think Houston and Hogan, right, sort of really sort of tease into that for many of the folks that are, as they sort of clue in to do the the reflective work to recognize that some of the things that we're seeing as deficiencies growing up are actually can actually become the great strengths for us.
0: I hope you're enjoying this episode of the Leap podcast. Don't miss a special live episode with author Min Jin Lee on Thursday, July 20th, 2023 at our annual Leap celebration sponsored by Target. This year's celebration theme is finding our way. Please support Leap and buy a celebration ticket today at leap.org forward slash celebration.
1: Curtis, There was a theme that was coming up as you were talking about your kind of your lived experiences early on in your life as you were trying to navigate the safe environments outside of the military families. So there's this theme about like you being adaptable and you being aware enough to actually go back and look at those instances and, and gather some knowledge and wisdom from that. How do you teach someone <laughs> and we're talking about leadership, right How do you mm-hmm. teach someone or how do you provide guidance to someone who is not where you are in terms of how you've been able to navigate society as you know as an individual from a different background?
2: Well you know I think if we look at sort of what's happening today in mental health and other things right there's notion of intentionality right mm-hmm. to intentionally remember whether that's journaling, whether that is, mm-hmm having a close group of people that you trust to be able to talk about those things. And I think there are other, there also for the younger folks, and maybe some older, there there are folks like me and others who are around that you can reach out to and talk to, right? There's, Steven Shigematsu's When Half is Whole sort of catalogs the stories of a number of mixed-race Asian folks to read their stories. There's a literature out there now, right? They don't necessarily have to write this children's stories anymore, although they still like mm-hmm. to work on those. There's memoirs that are solid. There's some are better than others. But you can find yourself of what mm-hmm. psychologists call you know, those the shared vulnerabilities. People have told their story. You can YouTube, right? The one danger I will say about sort of looking at those sorts of things is because they're still in a commercial environment, and tragedy yeah. sells. So okay. editors will push things toward the tragic because that's the narrative that they have. The TED talk I gave, I, I stay away from the tragic because yeah. that's that's easy. Finding the the strength in it,
1: right, mm. is
2: hard. And I'm not yeah. saying that it's easy work, and it's, but it's. Not only fruitful, but it, it can be really sort of empowering.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that in the sense of so often, I think we think about the negative, right? But it's harder to think about the positive. And I really like that part. Yeah.
2: You know, when, when Kip Fulbeck's exhibit at Janum came up, 50% Asian, 100% Hop Up, right? And back in 2003. And so what you notice when parents were bringing their kids through, all those sorts of things, just seeing the images of people and then reading sort of the comments that they made, right? At that time. Mm -hmm. And then when he did the 15 year later exhibit where you have photos from 15 years apart Mm -hmm. and we were asked to put on our card, write on our card, what does it mean to be mixed again? Without knowing, Mm -hmm. necessarily knowing what you wrote the first time and those are put in juxtaposition to each other. I think those sorts of things, I mean, sometimes the arts are are the place for Mm -hmm. where we can find empowerment in lots of different ways but those are available, right? There's in the books that came from those that, frankly, my growing up didn't have and the next generation didn't have. And so I think when you say, sort of what can some people do is to sort of search some of those things out. I've worked with a, a group of 30-something, almost 40 young people who I've got to meet in some of my other community work in the US-Japan Council and other things. And, and there were a number of folks who were mixed in that. And it's clear that they went to college when they didn't have a mixed-race class, mm-hmm. right? I teach, I teach mixed-race classes and, and seminars, as well as others. And so we just did a, created a community class. Now they're able to replicate that class, at least replicate a place for the conversations. There's some creative agency that we can use, and I think that becomes real helpful.
0: Curtis, there's so many more questions that we really want to ask. I think there's a question that Jan wants to ask you, but before she asks that, I have to ask this because I want to go back because to me, I thought it was really quite interesting and in the I think it ties into what you were talking about in terms of leadership, but I thought it was really interesting about your parents, you know, and perhaps, can I just ask you, could you tell us a little bit about how they met and- It was interesting that you said your mom was embraced by the Black community and particularly the matriarchs in the community there in Kansas. Do you know, does she share the same perspective that there was no cultural conflict for her? Because it sounds like from your perspective, there wasn't. And, And does she feel the same? And asking this because I thought it was fascinating what you said about how your dad taught you to respect your mother. And you said that's clearly, it's straight from the Black culture, right? And so, and then from your mom, she taught you to respect your dad, because in Japanese cultures, you know the the father is very much you know the kind of the elevated person, the the important person, and that respect is there. And it's just fascinating to me that you got the balance of both. And so, you to me, it seems like you come to the work that you do, your interactions with you know with others is based on this really lived experience of of true equality, I guess. So it's kind of a long-winded question.
2: I have to say I'm, I'm really fortunate that in my family, and, and I can only speak for my family there because others have their experience, but the coming together, the two cultures didn't necessarily conflictual as the way they played out in the lives of my brother and I. Now, to whatever conversations my parents were having when the door was closed, I can't say, right? And they shielded us from that. So that said, but, you know, my mom, melding into the black community in manhattan kansas again it can be you know it could be sort of a unicorn the one off but she was about five foot six so she was a very large woman for japan um at the time even today to some degree uh, literally a head taller than um, so in japan she didn't fit in our home village of gotemba where she was from in many ways didn't fit. But she would, she came from a family of strong women. We had, as far as I understand, the sort of the leader of the family was my great grandmother. So she was mm-hmm. sort of the matriarch of the family, whether it was through death of, of the males or whether they were incompetent or, or whatever. But so she, mm-hmm. there's a whole a history of very strong, strong women. I think they realized that being as large as she was she wasn't fitting in the village so they had her go live with an aunt in yokohama so that she could go to missionary school figuring that missionary school possibly gave her a place to to not fit better (laughs) you know not that she would necessarily fit but not fit better than she would in a small village right um that's where she gained uh, english language skills and so during the occupation she was able to work on base at Camp Zama and she had other friends who came from there. Apparently she had a really good friend who dated one of the guys on the football team and the football team was going to have a party. And so as sort of late teens, early twenties folks will do, we'll tell our parents we're going to the movie and then go someplace else. And so (laughs) which they did. And um, my dad saw my mom at that party and because he was on the football team and thought she was really a Interesting, attractive, and a whatever uh, you try not to think about those things with your parents. <laughs> so, but she said he was kind of annoying, <laughs> and, but he was persistent. And so eventually, he he sort of broke through, and you know, and I I think, and as I said, that she chose to be chose to marry my dad says a lot about her in terms of taking control of her life. But you know, the other thing too for during the occupation and in particular in the military, my father had rank and so they held a social status on base at least that was not mirrored in society at large. So she told me a story that when we first came to the States, we get off the airplane and we're in an airport somewhere in California, in Northern California. And she notices that all of the African-Americans there are porters or custodial. And she thought for one quick moment, what did I get myself into? Mm -hmm. because all the most of the men that she had met black men that she had met in japan were like my dad they they were they had some rank they my dad was manager Mm -hmm. in NCO club so you know other people had to listen to him you know within the sort of hierarchical order of the military and so when we got to kansas we first moved into the town that's adjacent to the post but she had heard from just that briefly from some of the other probably Japanese uh, wives or other military wives that there was a, there was a university town about 18 Mm -hmm. miles to the East, which was Manhattan with Kansas state university. And after the first day or so, she said to my dad, you're going to move us to the university town or I'm taking my boys and going home. And so we moved (laughs) and, uh, She, as I said, she, you know, the Pilgrim Baptist Church is where she ended up going. Again, the missionary background, so that wasn't hard. And she got embraced by the Black women's community. Her best friend was another military wife, but African American family. Mm -hmm. Their daughters, who were about seven, the youngest was seven years older than me, they became my big sisters, or Lynn did. She was my babysitter. Um, She went on to be the first uh, African American cheerleader at Kansas State University. She got mm-hmm. her doctorate from the University of Kansas. Has been wow. um, special assistant to the governor of Kansas when Sibelius was governor. So had a pretty good role model ahead of me. Being embraced by that community, they it was during the again during the sort of civil rights era. So they started these these mm-hmm. the 20th century literary and art club that raised scholarships for the top graduates, uh, African-American graduates from high school so that they could have some money for college, for books or whatever they needed. And so that the, the notion of being community activists, but community activists, that it wasn't about necessarily marching and having other things change, but saying, how do we sort of enrich and empower the, the kids in our community? They would do this annual fashion show. <laughs> that was a dinner. A lot of the women too were sort of, they were. Chefs is not quite the right, but they were cooks for the fraternities and sororities, mm. and so everyone took what their skills were. And my mom was a seamstress, and so they would do these shows, and part of the show they would have feature sort of some country from some place, and my mom would go to the mm-hmm. library, look at the ethnic costume from that from wherever it was, she would sketch it, come home, make patterns, and then sew the ethnic costume for whatever models that they had. Um, So everybody gave them their skills, right? And whatever their talents were. She then was, uh, she joined the Eastern Star, which is the women's auxiliary of the Masons. My father was a Mason. She joined the women's auxiliary of uh, Shriners. So all the black women's fraternal organizations she became a part of. And she rose to leadership positions, both locally and regionally in the Eastern Mm -hmm. Star she really, by her example, taught me sort of this notion of community service. My father went to Vietnam three times and was military, so he taught me about living on mission and service to ser- service to something larger than yourself, right? And then, of course, his parents, his father was a minister, a wow. preacher in, in North Carolina, and his mother was a, a deaconess in, in the church that she was mm. at, so this notion of leadership was one that was, you know, I, I, in that sense or in Weberian sense, I grew up in a black middle-class family, not from mm-hmm. a Marxist sense because we were, it wasn't about uh, income and other stuff, but in terms of yeah. community status, social status within the black community in particular, we were middle to upper middle-class, right? You know, with, yeah. with having a minister as a grandfather, right? Mm-hmm. And they, the other thing that, that they valued, and I think, and African-American culture really does value, although well, the media doesn't say, so it was education. And so reading was really important in our household. My parents, John, you know, I don't know if you're old enough, but but, but they used to have little traveling salesmen that would come to your door knocking knock on your door and ask you if you wanted to buy... Encyclopedia.
1: <laughs> an encyclopedia
2: right? And so they rubbed two nickels together that we didn't have and bought a set of encyclopedias.
1: Oh, really? Oh, my gosh. Um, wow.
2: I read... I read A through Z and they also had some craft books and great speeches. And so, you know, they bought the, I guess they bought the premium model, Uh, but, you know, that was important. So important though, but books, but books were also rare because they were expensive and everything. So even when I got to college, the idea of marking on my book, that was really hard to start. (laughs) Now I'm really good at it, but you know, that was, that, that was difficult. And we laugh about it, Right. But yeah. For a lot of the first to go kids when they go to college mm-hmm. and stuff, those are hard things to sort of wrap your head around because these were mm-hmm. precious to write in them was to deface them. And so you just yeah. didn't do that, which makes studying a little tougher. Right. <laughs> but, you know, and that so those that, you know, sort of elongate what, you know, are. My families gave me from both sides, and just mm-hmm. again on my mom's side, just this ability to recognize that she was other and mm-hmm. supported that instead of mm-hmm. uh, putting her down for it. And you know, mm-hmm. our family, at least at the sort of uh, nuclear family level, was not one of those horror stories in Japan where the they turned their back on it. You know, mm-hmm. I've got pictures of my mom's older brother in the old photo with my with my brother as an infant right? And those two, I guess, were tied at the hip because every photo I see, the two of them are running around together, Mm -hmm. right? When I came to Japan in 1978 to go to Sofia, my mom's older sister made sure I had, went out, she established, got my room for me, got the place that I was going to live, everything, called her brother up and said, meet him at the airport. And so they've always just sort of brought us back into the family as if we were living next door all the time. They used to send us great care packages too in Kansas Mm -hmm. back in the 60s because there there weren't a lot of, you couldn't go to (laughs) (laughs) H-Mark or Marukai back then, right? So there was one one sort of Asian market next to the post where you could get a few things, but like, (laughs) Uh, those were the joyful things, right? Just the way, the little things, but also teaching you other lessons too, right? Again, I was quite fortunate. I said, not that my parents didn't have they're sort of couples' problems. I am uh, right. I know that they did. My brother and I were lucky. They mostly did not land on us. Mm-hmm. And then my brother mm-hmm. and I, we grew up in a combination between sort of black and Japanese culture. He was an mm-hmm. older brother, so he's onicha mm-hmm. And So we weren't meant to be best friends. He was mm-hmm. meant to be my big brother. I was meant to be the little brother, which meant mm-hmm. I had to listen to him, which sometimes didn't work real well. <laughs> but he would always protect me, no matter how emoto I got, so... <laughs>
0: Do you call him Onichan still?
2: No, I well, I didn't call him Onichan. I called him Tommy. I mean, we, we went by our names, but yeah. we performed those roles.
0: But so. you still had to play that—that that he's your big brother. Okay. <laughs> does, oh, that, yeah. does that mean? Does that mean big brother? Yes. Is that the it terminology? Okay, got
1: it. So, just, so in, uh, in Korean too, we do the same. You, you can't call I, an older person by their name.
2: Yeah. So the, the 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 way in which it sort of I would explain this, even. Uh, you know he's passed away, but even till the day he he passed away, if he wanted a pack of gum and he gave me twenty dollars to go buy it, he wasn't getting any change because <laughs> <laughs> I knew that if he didn't want me to have the change, he would have given me a twenty dollar bill. So
1: <laughs> and
2: that was and, and, and then very Japanese, he couldn't quite give you the money, but <laughs> oh, that's right, great. and so you know, that's just the way that that worked, right, mm-hmm. and. For us to have a close relationship wasn't relying on us being best friends. It was relying on us playing our roles regardless of other material stuff. And I figured that out in college because, you know, there was a time when I pushed back against it. And I literally can remember getting off the phone one time and saying to my roommates, I said, and and I decided that I was I was just going to be the little brother. I wasn't going to, right? And um, I got off the phone and said, I've got my big brother back. Mm-hmm. but it wasn't him coming back it was me coming back right mm-hmm. he was pretty he was pretty consistent
0: and he also really expected and played into that role as well too mm-hmm. as a as a big brother
2: oh he understood the role and that that was a major part of his identity and extended on to as he re, they were moving toward retirement most people downsized he and his wife upsized so that they could have other all the family come stay with them in, in Denver no they're in denver oh, right. Colorado. He saw that was his role, is to be a place where everyone could come and, and relax and be safe. And he felt most comfortable when he was being the protector. And it helped that he was 6'3".
1: <laughs> <laughs> How tall are, are you, Curtis? Curtis
2: I'm 5'9". I took after <laughs> my dad.
1: <laughs> <laughs> my,
2: my brother took after my mom.
1: 6'3". <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's tall. But <laughs> said earlier that there was a question that I wanted to ask you. And so I was born in Korea and I came to the United States when I was eight for, from Korea. And I grew up in San Francisco. And at that time, and this was in the late 70s to early 80s. And mm-hmm. I thought being mixed was the coolest thing. And that was like, I know I sound idiotic even saying this, but <laughs> upon reflection of my childhood, so being, you know, mixed race, I, you know, our friends thought that was a cool thing. I knew people who were, you know, mixed race and that was a cool thing. Like, did you ever feel like it was cool or it was interesting or it was negative, like as you were growing up and then the, you know, kind of the additional pieces you you teach mixed race studies. So, you know, how does the new generation view being mixed in any way?
2: So, you know, at different periods of your life, right? So yeah. the early period of my life, I was pretty much just a... Externally, from people from the outside, with certain occasions, I was just a a little black kid, right? Again, we were, you know, pretty segregated in the way sort of even Manhattan worked in terms of housing and residences and stuff. Mm -hmm. The only time being Japanese became a problem was when I would speak Japanese at school, and so they finally called my Mm -hmm. parents in and say, please have him stop speaking that foreign language because it will hurt him in school. Um, This is the early 60s, so I'll Mm -hmm. give them a break for the moment. Um, during the cold war and so the so having lost my japanese fluency is something that i'm still trying to, to retain or regain okinawa was where i got to be mixed in north carolina i was a black kid in texas i was a black kid that had a japanese mom okinawa was really important as i look back on a lot of different ways one mom was valued not that she wasn't valued in the black community but she could be japanese (laughs) she was that she could we could both we could move on and off base linguistically on and off base culturally and she you know she she was actually nominated for nco wife of the year she taught um uh japanese crafts all those sorts of things to all the other wives who were there and um particularly american wives and and because she could translate or help or 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 sort of explain different phrases or things that would happen. So, so seeing her be able to move through the space with unapologetically and, and with value at it, I think for, you know, again, it's, if this is looking back on it, right. And sort of reflecting that plays back on you as a kid too. It's like you move with them in the same mm-hmm. way. Right. And again, having lots of other hafu kids around also help, you know, Most of my first, almost all my girlfriends were, you know, sort of that junior high girlfriend. But having that, you know, but also having a strong Asian American community around me, even though my best friend was, was, was Holly, but it was an incredibly, it was a diverse environment, but it's diverse toward Asian. And so being hafu was all right, you know, and in some ways, those of us who were hafu on Okinawa, because especially if we had other language skills, we were cool off base because we could We can negotiate off base with no problem. On base, we weren't questioned about being there, um, where our sort of Asian American friends were, and so we had we were in a sort of social power position wherever we we stood. And I think for an adolescent, that's like huge, right? For me, it also intersects with being an athlete, so I was I was able to do pretty well. So in sort of and how gender works, so being a boy, being a good athlete, that made life a lot easier. Being mixed in college was challenging at times because black nationalism was huge, all those sorts of things. And so to hang on to my mixed identity could be isolating at times. Thankfully, I've, I found a Japanese family in the area that I, that adopted me. <laughs> and our kids call each other cousins today, right? And so when I really had to have good gohan, I could go to their house to just show up for their house for dinner or just show up for their house period cuz there's always gohana right and so you know so when you really needed that soul food you could go, I could go get soul food at their house you know being mixed i never thought of it as being cool or not cool i just thought it was it was just for me it was a state of being you know it's like being mixed is early on in some of the work we were doing maria root who's done some of the most important identity work with mixed and as it relates to, for therapists to, to be able to use and understand their clients um, and help them sort of whatever, with whatever their needs are, you know, and she has the sort of the mixed race bill of rights that she writes, you know, being mixed is, and we once got into a, a pretty um, interesting conversation. One might even say a little bit heated was about sort of, is being mixed hard? I would say, no, it's not bit mixed is. And for me, if I were to admit that being mixed is hard, then being not mixed must be easy. And I don't have the option of being not mixed. Even if I only identify as, choose to identify as a black male or choose to identify as Japanese, I still know that I'm mixed,
1: Mm
2: -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so I don't really have the options of being only one, no matter how I front the, do the other things. And so I wouldn't accept that being mixed is hard
1: mm-hmm.
2: just because of, of w- what the opposite had to be. And so as we continue to talk, and this comes out later in and the Houston Hogan site, it's like being mixed is complicated. Yeah, It's complex, mm-hmm. right? And that complexity sometimes has some really hard moments in it, mm-hmm. but it's not all that, right? And yeah. there are some really joyful moments in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of boring moments, right? Because one of the things that sort of I've strived for is to allow people of mixed background to know like, we can be normal, we can be boring. Mm -hmm. We don't have to be hybrid vigor and we don't have to be hybrid degenerate. We can just be. Mm -hmm. Being mixed is, and depending Mm -hmm. on our family situation, our personal skill sets, all those things, sometimes it's really good, sometimes it's really bad. Mm -hmm. And most of the time it just is, that's okay. To, to live our different normal. So in, in those ways, right?
0: I mean that's actually really yeah. interesting in, in for a couple of reasons. One, one, I would just say, what is normal anyways? Even if you're not mixed race, what is normal? And right. that to me is just really interesting. And what you also just say said about being just normal. You, you know, you're just normal. Others who are mixed race are just normal too. I mean, and you know, to just be just is. I feel like that's just something that I think all of us want, right? We just want to be. We don't necessarily look to have the labels that are put on us, but they are. But as I think about, you know, the conversations that are going on now in different spaces, there's a lot of conversations about belonging and to right. me, I think I just think about belonging is just I just want to be. I just want to be who I am without any qualifications, without any judgment, you know, just let me be who I am, which is already complex. And then, you know, it's the same for anybody else. You know, everybody is complex.
2: Right. And, and I will say though, but the, the labels don't have to be confining. They can also be empowering.
0: Right. Mm-hmm.
2: And so, you know, John, you asked about sort of teaching and sort of how the younger feel. Yeah. I think, you know, I think the Gen Z in general is better with complex identity they are able to recognize that they they have multiple identities, that the context de- de- determines which is privileged. And so if you think of the, these different identities in concentric circles that are perforated because there's fluid, you know, there's movement in, in and across them, but what's at the center, depending on the context, so that they oscillate, these different identities mm-hmm. oscillate to the center for context, right? And then they may intersect with some other things. and they can do that without paralyzing contradiction.
1: Mm-hmm. Let's say
2: about some contradiction sometimes, but without paralyzing contradiction. My generation is an either or generation, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, a, yeah. I'm a baby boomer. I'm a sort of mm-hmm. younger baby boomer, but baby boomer nonetheless. And it's that, yeah. it's an either or generation. And, and it's really hard for them to wrap their minds around someone who can be both and. And so when I, I work with my students and, and teaching the classes, many of them have had to fight the battles of, of how others see them and being othered in lots of different ways. And mm-hmm. so what I try to do is give them language give them language to talk about their lives, to understand their lives, give them a place to talk about their lives, have them share their vulnerabilities with each other through the reading of of vulnerabilities that others provide and, and how those vulnerabilities can be strengths, have them recognize that the whole sort of tragic mulatto discourse came, at least in the United States, came out of, at least at the public level, came out of a discussion or came out of the 1802 presidential campaign in which they were trying to smear Thomas Jefferson. So the whole notion of uh, it's the definition of whiteness, definition of blackness, and the way in which that plays out, which has this implication for the mixed race subject. Um, Elise Lemaire does a wonderful job on this in a, in a book called Anti-Miscegenation. Even that narrative doesn't come out of an examination of mixed race subject themselves, but about mm-hmm. two two white elites, groups of white elites vying for power, and in doing so, right, denigrate Jefferson because of his relationship with Sally Hemings, mm-hmm. that then blows back on every all persons of color and the mixed race subject as well. So mm-hmm. once they understand that, that how that discourse comes about, that it had absolutely nothing to do with them and that process of trying to separate the races as being distinct, right? Right. So that any mixing that occurred made you a mutation mm-hmm. from a biological sense, made you an abomination from a moral sense to which they then passed legislation or a loss that made you illegitimate in the legal sense. Wow. Right. But that had absolutely nothing to do with the mixed race subject themselves, right? It comes out of this larger. So once you start to understand that sort of mm-hmm. history, Without mm-hmm. saying that they were people were bad for doing it because it, mm-hmm. it is isn't is, right? Yeah. So being able to, to deconstruct that and then allow you to reconstruct how you understand yourself once you start to understand that. Looking at the other discussions and, and, and the way in which eugenics plays into some things later in the 20s mm-hmm. really becomes a place of, of empowerment for, for
1: yeah. my
2: students. And again, giving them language, even the notion of different normal. Right, yeah. which I didn't always, this is something more recently, but you know, when I first started teaching, was, we're either, you know, we're, we're both and not either or, mm-hmm. which you know, was incredibly empowering for people. So even today, teaching, I'm teaching a mixed roots and transnational identity because, mm-hmm. and it's really about sort of how do groups define at the margins, right? Sort of mm-hmm. uh, understand understand themselves in relationship to the center or the society, mm-hmm. and that we do we do contribute greatly to that society. As I watch the students sort of start to discover those things and discover a language, their body language changes even in the span of one class, right? I mean, oh. and, uh, taking a classroom, being kind of, almost kind of ashamed of being, oh yeah, I'm Hafu.
1: Oh, that's so great.
2: And some of it comes with lots of tears and other things, but if nothing else, it's like the struggle is real. And nobody here is going to gaslight you, Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm. right?
2: Not being too sensitive. For me, it's but recognize that what are you question has absolutely nothing to do with Mm -hmm. you in in many respects, but Mm -hmm. everything to do about the person asking the question.
1: That's really powerful. You're giving permission to say that, you know, it's not your fault. You're actually not permission, but you're just saying it's not your fault. Number one, about any of anything that you might be feeling as it relates to your identity. And then number two, like I'm going to going to give you the tools so that you can come away with a better understanding and how to articulate where you stand in this world.
2: It's not that you don't have to deal with tragedy (laughs) or tragic, right? You yourself are not tragic.
1: Yeah. It's so powerful. Yeah. Can we take your class?
2: (laughs) (laughs) As long as you do the reading.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, On that note, I I feel like a reading list would be great as a follow-up. If we could get a reading list from you, Curtis.
2: Jump on my laptop. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, great.
0: Oh, that would be great. I just have to say, I mean, this was such an interesting conversation. It was, thank you so much. And, you know, I just really love all the things that you, you know, talked about. And, you know, these questions of identity. And I think about, you know, within our own families, we have family members. Maybe sometimes we talk about these explicitly. A lot of times we don't. It's just Mm -hmm. something like you said, you know, there just are. And yet at the same time, I think, the more we can perhaps understand ourselves, hopefully we can also help pass on if there's curiosity on their parts, you know, some of the language and the resources that can be used if they're interested in exploring as well too. And I also loved what you said about the leadership gifts you are able to bring that you see others, you know, who are also mixed race bringing to, you know the spaces that everybody is in. I mean, there's so much in in the ways in which they can see things that sometimes others can't see. And that's so important in our especially in our workplaces, I think about that too.
2: And I also think they allow themselves to the ability to see systems. Mm -hmm. And the way complex systems work. Because if you take it back from the sort of communication part, how to communicate, but those are part of systems. And so if you I tend to see the world in three-dimensional matrices and Venn diagrams, intersecting Venn diagrams, but they represent systems. And so being for me, being able to, to see systems and see the systems, and again, it's not that everyone will be able to do that just because they're mixed, but that possibility is there if you learn to sort of decode it, as they say, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so you can see that these are systems that work. And so it's not only just communications, but sort of how the different entities within the workspace that you're working, and how they work, and how they play off of each other, and the need to be, figure out ways to have them run more smoothly. Once you identify what the task, is again, it's it's something that we have, and and I would argue sort of too. You know, Young, you said that you came as a, a eight year old, mm-hmm. right? There's a lot to be shared with that immigrant family that comes because you be you're you're on the edge. Right? You become an edge dancer by definition the moment you get off of the plane. And so you have to be then become an observer of culture, of language, of systems in order for you to navigate those just to meet your life needs, right? If we're able to tap into those knowledges or sort of that Mm -hmm. sort of and help you articulate those things, then you can then become more intentional about how you sort of engage with those, whether it's systems and communications and the other things, you know, which is something I think LEAP does an incredible job of in their training in many respects i you know i don't know if you would articulate quite that way the way i see the world that's one of the ways that i would articulate it. so once once that you become aware of that then you're able then to channel or marshal it in such a way to be intentional and in the use of that skill
0: yeah that's so true and yeah definitely i think it goes back to your earlier point about the code switching and being able to understand how to navigate through an environment to get your needs met, but not doing so without losing yourself. I I guess I would see that. I mean, even for you being in Japan, I mean, the part of you that knows you need to do things in a certain way to get through life in Japan is also perhaps part of the upbringing that you had and the lessons learned from your mom as well, you know, to navigate in a place like Japan. And I mean, to me, I think Speaking another language also enables us to do that because how I feel like, I don't know, for me, you know, when I switch to speaking in Japanese, my body language, even just the way in which I approach things is very different than if I speak English. And I think maybe consciously or unconsciously are built into the way the language is, but I find myself, you know, even just my body is very different when I'm speaking in Japanese versus if I speak in English. And I couldn't speak in Japanese the way I speak in English if I wanted to be true in that way. And that's mm-hmm. part of my upbringing too. So that's how I'm connecting what you're saying, you know, to mm-hmm. our conversation as well.
2: Absolutely. And that's it, because it's it's a sort of full body communication and even mm-hmm. and spirit communication in a lot of different mm-hmm. ways. I was raised to be a culturally Japanese, right, from my mom. Mm. And even within that sort of probably Japanese female. I didn't have male role models around, Japanese male role models around. Unlike my brother who at least had a, our uncle when he was little. And I think that always was a part of him. I find myself in Japan very comfortable and moving around and just being in the space. Sometimes it gets tiring because you have to make yourself smaller. Yeah. <laughs> you can get a little tired from that, but... Uh, yeah. In some ways it's seamless, I don't think a whole lot about it. If I think about it, then it gets kind of crazy. But I had a friend who's also an anthropologist. We were talking and she goes, you know, you move like a Japanese (laughs) (laughs) in terms of, you know, as we travel over and go go different places to to see things. And I never thought about it in that context. But if you've been to Japan, like Shibuya crossing is probably humanity crosses when the lights turn green
0: Mm -hmm.
2: and people don't run into each other. Very little physical contact, yet they're all moving through there, right? Yep. There's an awareness of space. Mm
0: -hmm. And
2: people will just slightly shift their bodies, and I think it's fascinating. (laughs) I mean, it's just fascinating. fascinating. But that's part of being Japanese, is Mm -hmm. understanding space. If I had to talk about Japanese culture in a single word, it would be space. Whether it's live space, Uh, personal space, it's the use of space. Um, and, and yeah Asian cultures are like that too I felt I feel <laughs> it's sort of at home this when I'm in in Seoul or Beijing there's you know yeah. in the east Asian culture places it's like there's some yeah. there's some things that are familiar and there's mm-hmm. a lot of things that I don't get but there's there's some things yeah. that are familiar so but being able to again once you once you're able to identify them you know it's not that we have to but you know in terms of leadership training and other things because so much of what our Asian culture that we bring to it. And sometimes our black culture is seen as deficiencies in a corporate workspace. Mm-hmm. I think there are ways to employ that, those cultural ways of being within that workspace. And you have to know that work other workspace. And again, without giving, a, giving your whole self away. Right. But to recognize it's a, a matter of achieving the outcomes that you desire for yourself and for corporate or the company that you're working with.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Again, without losing yourself too. And I I think, and it's really not about giving up anything, but it's just understanding there's more than one way to express yourself and to express what's important Mm -hmm. to you. And it's not always so narrowly defined. And Mm -hmm. I think that's also the other takeaway from what you're saying, especially in terms of, you know, what, those who are mixed race, really, in terms of the the kind of the fullness. And I guess I'll just, one of the last things I'll say is one of our other speakers that we had a conversation with, she is uh, Samoan and her father is Aymara from, uh, I guess, the indigenous uh, community in Bolivia. And we're talking about being mixed. And she, she says she heard on a podcast, someone talk about, you know, she's not about not being half of one and half of another, but she she said the person defined it instead of, I'm 100% of one and 100% of others, so I'm 200%. So mm-hmm. it was just kind of a nice way to look at it, along with what you say is the different normal, too. Uh,
2: the one last thing I would sort of come back to is the notion about conflict, because everybody tries to sort of be so conflict-averse. But if you, th- and I and this is in the, the TEDx side, it was like, mm-hmm. Change requires conflict, Mm -hmm. right? You need, uh, if we even just do it in chemistry, without heat, we don't get change. And so if I put chicken in a pot of cold water, I can't eat that chicken. (laughs) Heat it up and boil it, I can eat the chicken, right? Mm -hmm. There's conflict, you know, and that's just Mm -hmm. chemical conflict there, right? So we shouldn't be afraid of conflict, right? Mm -hmm. We should learn how to manage it, look to keep it from becoming devastating and, and hurtful. But if you understand change, change is not going to come without without some conflict. And so growing up in a mixed household, immigrant families, sometimes when they work really well and sort mm-hmm. of understand, they recognize that they're going to be, when things, that heat, right? That friction, mm-hmm. but that friction doesn't always have to be bad. Allowing oneself to change is not that. It's mm-hmm. certainly the direction and why you're changing but sort of but that's okay and we know yeah. it can be done without paralyzing contradiction and loss of self it can create something new and sometimes the new's good sometimes the new's not so good but mm-hmm. it's it's an issue of the persistence black culture or black history and asian history tells us uh, asian american histories that issue of persistence and resilience is you know come on and giddy, sprinkle a little bit of hard work, come mm-hmm. and plays itself out. And we all have this history that we can draw on, regardless of what other people want to tell us about who we are.
0: This is so awesome. Love it.
2: I am so glad I got to meet you, Jan. I'm looking forward to this when I get back. And Linda, of course, we go, we won't say how long we go back, but <laughs> We met, when, we met when we were six. No, uh.
0: <laughs> We're both very, very young. I'll say that. <laughs> oh, that's great. And that's a wrap. Thank you for joining Jan and I for this season three episode of the Leap podcast. Stay connected with Leap by joining Leap's mailing list at leap.org and follow us on Leap's social media on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.
1: And if you really enjoyed this podcast, please donate to Leap, Thank you all for tuning in today. We look forward to being with you next time.